Well, we are so excited to do a series that we're setting off on tonight. Um, been wanting to do it for a long time, and it's a, I think it's an important thing that every church should do at some point or another. And so before we begin, let's say a word of prayer. Lord, as always, we want to ask that you would bless our time together. We thank you for the wonderful examples of people that have gone before us. Pray that we'd appreciate that as your people. We'd be motivated by that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's a very special chapter in the New Testament book of Hebrews that we as Christians call the Hall of Faith. Does anybody know what chapter that is? Hebrews chapter 11. And it's essentially a list of all these great men and women of God who are known for their faith throughout the scripture. And as a church, we've gone through that list many times. Uh, it's such an encouraging thing just to, to study the lives of real men and women and how God used them. And it's always an, an inspiring thing. And in this series called Legends, we're sort of extending that chapter to include some of the stories of great men and women of faith in church history. You know, a lot's happened in the last 2,000 years. God has done an amazing thing through his people. And us, in this generation, we stand on the shoulders of some great people that have come before us. People who have done amazing things, people who have opened doors for the church all around the world, people who have made tremendous sacrifices that we benefit from to this day. So we should know some of that history, and we should know some of the stories of these men and women. Now, as you can guess, there are many, many, many men and women that have made an impact in church history over the last 2,000 years. We can't study all of them. So we've chosen 16 that we're going to be looking at on Wednesday nights. And we chose them from different backgrounds, representing different fields of ministry and service. We think we got a broad spectrum of some of these different folks that we're going to be studying on Wednesday night. I'm getting help. I'm not the only one who's going to be doing this series. Pastor Daniel and Pastor Peter are going to be helping me. Because of all the research, we're going to be sort of tag-teaming. So I'm going to, I'm responsible for six legends, and Peter and Daniel are responsible for five legends. I can't wait to share what I learn through my research, and I can't wait to hear what they've learned through their research as well. So that's where we're headed with this series we call Legends. And our first legend on the list is my favorite. Paul the Apostle, also known as Saul of Tarsus, this guy is my hero in the faith. 
basic facts on Paul. We're not totally sure on his dates, but he was born right around 5 AD and he died at 66 AD. Born in Tarsus. Married, there's a question mark next to that. We're not absolutely sure if he was married. If he was married, um, then we don't know his wife or anything like that. Now, most Bible scholars, and I tend to agree, that he was married but became a widow and never remarried. So he didn't have a wife when he was doing all the activity that we see in the book of Acts. He was a missionary, a pastor, an evangelist, a theologian, an apologist, church planner, so many. He did so many things. He changed the world in incredible ways in the earliest part of church history. And he died as a martyr. In 66 AD, he was beheaded under the Roman Emperor Nero. So those are some basic facts. Let's just remember his story tonight. Let's just tell his story tonight. And I want to start when he was primarily known as Saul of Tarsus. So being Saul of Tarsus, where was he born? Trick question. He was born in Tarsus. And it's important to understand where a person grows up. That defines you. Whether you grow up in a big city, small town, border town, it has a big impact on who you become. Paul was a city boy. Tarsus is located about 360 miles north of Jerusalem. Right on the south central coast of what is now modern day Turkey. Big city. Thriving emporium of trade, a focus of intellectual and religious activity. Saul, growing up there, would have seen all the business that took place between the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews. He grew up watching the way the world operates. He knew lots of people. He would learn Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. He knew how all of these different cultures went together. He was a very cultured man. In fact, we also know that Saul of Tarsus was a Roman citizen. His parents became Roman citizens. You'd buy into it. You had to be very wealth, wealthy. He was born a Roman citizen, and he enjoyed all of those things that went with it. But though he lived in Tarsus, though they were Roman citizens, he was Jewish. Saul was full-blooded Jew, born to full-blooded Jewish parents. And he tells us about that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. These are Paul talking about basically how he grew up. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, 
concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, I just want to underline a few phrases in that. Saul was of the stock of Israel, from the family of Israel, born as one of the chosen people of God. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now that means that he and his family were extremely dedicated to Judaism. Though he lived in Tarsus, though his family lived in Tarsus, um, they didn't become what was called Hellenized. Many of the Jews would become Hellenized who lived outside of Jerusalem, meaning they took on Greek culture. Saul's family did not. They did all the kosher diet. They did the Sabbath. They did all the feast days. They did all of the traveling to Jerusalem for those pilgrimages. All that, the Torah, the synagogue, all of that. He was a dedicated Jewish man. Going back to his birth. He was circumcised the eighth day according to the law of Moses. So Saul was Jewish and committed to Judaism from birth up. He didn't get, you know, proselytized into the Jewish culture later. He grew up in it. It was all he knew. It was everything that he's, he was about and his family. Also said that he could trace his family line back to the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was a uh, very high-quality tribe. It, it, it was very respectful. By the way, the first king of Israel was a Benjamite. Do you remember what his name was? Saul. So he was named after the first king of Israel. So Saul was as Jewish as a Jew could be. His whole life was about it, from birth up. And yet, here's what's really interesting, yet he was exposed to the Gentile world living in Tarsus, Rome and the Gentiles. And so he had this incredible grasp of both. Though he was born and raised with an incredible understanding of the world in which he lived, he still was able to retain all that is meant by being a full-blooded Hebrew committed to Judaism. So he's a guy who would be a great bridge between Judaism, Gentile, church, Jew. It was almost like he was framed and fashioned and being prepared for that. Now, Saul was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant, and he became a religious prodigy. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Saul of Tarsus became a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the exclusive elite religious group in all of Israel. There were only 6,000 of them out of a nation of a few million. The Pharisee is the separated one. 
separated, completely separated from all secular involvement to life, of complete and total dedication to studying and living out the law of Moses in meticulous detail. That's where he became. And if you kind of follow a timeline that he probably would have taken, eighth day of life, he was circumcised. Age five, he began reading scripture in Hebrew. That's kindergarten. At age five, he memorized Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine, the great Shema, and he memorized Psalm 113 to 118. I don't think I could memorize anything at age five. Age six, he went to a rabbinical school. Age 10, he was instructed in Torah and the oral law, which is called the Talmud, the Mishnah. Age 10. Age 14, his bar mitzvah, son of the law. And then, according to uh, Acts 22, in his late teens, um, you find out from Acts 22, he moved to Jerusalem with his sister's family, and he studied under Rabbi Gamaliel, the premier rabbi in all of Israel, the top guy that anybody could follow. That was his upbringing, his education. He ends up becoming one of the 6,000 Pharisees. And he would actually become a Pharisee of the Pharisees because Saul of Tarsus would become a member of the Sanhedrin Council. Now the Sanhedrin Council was comprised of 70 Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees. He was in the Jewish Supreme Court. He had risen to the level of the highest religious duties in all of Israel. And by the way, that's why I believe he was married for a time bid. Because you couldn't join the Sanhedrin unless you were married. Now, he became a member of the Sanhedrin probably right around the age of 30, which would be 35 A.D. So about two or three years after Jesus died and was rose, rose again and was ascended. And right into those very explosive years in church history where the church is beginning to grow and expand and grow like crazy. Right at that time period is about when Paul becomes a part of the Sanhedrin court. Very key moment in time. Notice what else he would say concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless nobody was more religious than Saul of Tarsus he kept the law of Moses meticulously he was utterly separate from all of the secular stuff in life. And he was really good at it. He was blameless. So he's reached the highest echelons of religious leadership. And he's one of the most religious people who has ever lived. Yet, with all of that religion, with all of that external piety, with all of that honor and prestige 
and admiration that came with reaching the highest levels. Paul wasn't happy inside. We know that. As righteous as he might have looked on the outside, he knew who he was on the inside. And when you study the life of Saul of Tarsus, you, 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 you see this incredible fight in his life for an inward righteousness that would match an outward righteousness. And he knew who he was. He knew the struggle that he had. He knew that you could pretend and not be real. Very important phrase in verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. So not only was he, you know, had this incredible success in Judaism, he had a zeal for it. And in his zeal, he would protect Judaism. He would do whatever it would take to protect Judaism. If if the Jewish people were starting to get off track, man, Saul of Tarsus went on attack mode. And in fact... As a member of the Sanhedrin, brand new on, he would be on attack mode. He would be against anything that might come against his precious religion, his precious Judaism. And it was right then, it was right then, that Jews started becoming Christians. And started talking about and worshiping a man named Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again. Saul hated that. When you first meet Saul in the scriptures, in the book of Acts, it's in Acts chapter 7. Stephen has become the first martyr of the church. They stoned him to death. And the scripture says that they laid the robes of Stephen at the feet of Saul. Saul had given permission for that. Saul was complicit in the death, the first martyr of the church. And the Sanhedrin set him loose. He became the chief persecutor of the church. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, when it says he made havoc of the church, that's a Greek word, havoc, that speaks about the way a wild animal rips apart its prey. The early church is getting started. Saul of Tarsus is ripping it apart. He's going into every house in Jerusalem, Dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Acts chapter 9 says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's almost like he got obsessed with it. The language here is he was breathing in and out constantly. Murder, slaughter, threats against the early church. Someone put it like this, threatening and slaughter 
had come to be the very breath that Saul breathed, like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle. Years later, when Paul gives his testimony in Acts chapter 26, he says, And I punished them, the Christians, often in every synagogue, and I compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, this is, this is incredible language. It's brutal. Saul used to go to the, get the Christians in the synagogue and compel them to blaspheme and punish. That means torture. He'd torture Christians to get them to recant. When it says he is exceedingly enraged, it's the Greek word emaniomai, and we get our English word maniac from this. Saul, looking back on these days in his life, said, I had the anger and fury of a maniac in hunting down Christians. When I think of Saul at this period in his life, I think of that. Very religious man, dressed up in religion, proud of it. Reached the top echelons, pointing his finger at everyone. And even killing and imprisoning people that he thought was a threat, which was the early church. What difference does that make him from this guy? Not much difference. Saul of Tarsus was a religious zealot terrorist who would do anything to protect his precious Judaism, including killing people. And here's the thing. He thought he was right. He thought he was serving God. He thought he was on the right side. But incredibly deceived, and definitely going the wrong way. And that's when God enters the picture. A great miracle. So according to Acts chapter 9, Saul goes to the high priest. He asks for letters. He's heard about some Christians in Damascus. He says, give me letters, give me the authority. I'll go, I'll arrest them, and I'll bring them back bound to Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 9, as he's getting close to the city of Damascus, Jesus stepped in. Suddenly and completely, out of nowhere, without any warning, Scripture says a bright light shone, brighter than the sun during that day. It knocked him off his beast. The light blinded him. And then a voice from heaven, a literal voice from heaven spoke. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And Saul on his back, looking up, says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Stopped him in his tracks. Left him blind for three days. The people that were with him, the army folks that were with him, they heard the voice, but they saw nothing. They picked up Saul, led him to a little house in Damascus, and left him there. And there he was, blind for three days, and he fasted. No food, no water. And that would be the earthquake that would shake the whole landscape of Christianity in the early church. That's the conversion. They call it the greatest conversion in all of history. This is when Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. This is when the chief persecutor of the church will be transformed into the greatest propagator of the church. Isn't God awesome? Don't you love what he... It's like, let me find the worst case possible. Grab that person's life, knock them off their beast, change their direction. And that's what he did with Saul. It's been called the greatest conversion in all of history. And my friends, please listen. It's one of the greatest examples in all of scripture of grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, where he pulls out blessings upon people that don't deserve it. Did Paul deserve that? Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Saul was opposing Jesus. If anything, Saul deserved to be killed on the road to Damascus and sent directly to hell. That's what he deserved. But Jesus saved his life. Absolutely saved his life. And it was because of the grace of God that Saul of Tarsus would finally find that inward righteousness that he so craved. The religious, the most religious man on planet earth couldn't find it. But in a relationship with Jesus Christ, he found the inner righteousness that comes through faith in him. All those details that I saw you showed you earlier in, in Philippians chapter 3, all the things that he had going for him, look what he would say about them. But th- what things were gained to me, these indeed I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all these things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. I was a member of the Sanhedrin. I counted as rubbish. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I counted as rubbish. I was born to a wealthy family in a beautiful city, had everything going for it. It was rubbish. All of it was rubbish. 
I found something so much greater. I found the grace of God. And that's why he could say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, shortly after what happened in Damascus, he was going from Jerusalem on his way up to Damascus. This is where the event happened. He was taken into the city of Damascus. He stayed there for a couple weeks. He left Damascus and he went to this place called Arabia. And it could be way down here also on the map, way down And he disappeared for three years. Saul of Tarsus disappeared for three years in the wilderness area of Arabia. It's called the silence, the silent years of Paul. And in the wilderness, he rethought his whole life. It's there that it's believed that he began to understand all of what he knew about the Torah and the Old Testament in a completely different way. After three years, he came back to Damascus and he started sharing Christ with people there and they tried to kill him. So he began to get a taste of his own medicine. And in fact, it was so scary, they had to let him down at night out of a window in a basket. You remember the story. He goes down to Jerusalem where he spends some time and a threat breaks out against him. So... All of the apostles there said, uh, Paul, you need, to, you need to go. You need to get, get lost for a while. So he went back to Tarsus. And he spent the next seven to ten years of his life in, back in his hometown. We have no knowledge of what he did there. But I'll bet he did a lot. I'll bet he did amazing things. So really, if you include Arabia and and Tarsus, the first 10 to 15 years of his life were lived in complete isolation. We don't know what he did. And by the way, those are very powerful years. Well, eventually, Jerusalem was the mother church, but there was another hub that became a major hub of church history, and it's this place called Antioch. Notice how close it is to Tarsus. So it's becoming a big church there, and they're needing more help. And a man by the name of Barnabas remembers that, well, Paul's in Tarsus. So he goes to Tarsus, he invites Paul to come and help pastor at the church at Antioch. And it's from there that he becomes that Apostle Paul that literally changes everything on the Christian front. Three missionary journeys over an 11-year period of time. He logged about 10,000 miles, walking, beast, boat. He led countless souls to Christ. He established 14 named local churches, you know, like Corinth, Colossae, Ephesus, that are named in the Bible. But he also established and probably planted many others. He mentored and raised up hundreds of, of ministers, guys like Titus and Timothy, 
and installed them as pastors and elders over these different local churches that he established all over the known world at that time. He wrote 13 letters under the inspiration that made it into the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that made it into the New Testament. 14 if you think he wrote the book of Hebrews. I do think that he wrote the book of Hebrews. He testified before world powers and he suffered greatly for Jesus Christ. Nobody suffered more than Saul. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he gives kind of a, a list of what he went through in his sufferings for Christ. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of water, in perils of my own countrymen by my Jewish people, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, Perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And we think we suffer for Christ. Look what he did, look what he suffered. And then, of course, he paid the ultimate price. Martyred for Christ. The Apostle Paul literally changed everything. 2,000 years later, we're benefiting from what Apostle Paul did. Someone said, apart from Jesus, Paul is the most important human being who ever lived. He led the church into a worldwide movement, formulated its theology, and shaped its destiny. Without Paul or someone like him, the infant church would not have grown into the spiritual and intellectual maturity which changed the course of history. Everything that he did. The early church needed an apostle who was deeply instructed in Jewish law. And so Paul was. The early church needed an apostle who was an expert in the Hebrew scriptures. And so Paul was. The early church needed an apostle who was fluent in all the languages of the day. Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, and so Paul was. The early church needed an apostle with a brilliant, educated mind that was able to articulate the doctrines of the Christian faith, and so Paul was. The early church needed an apostle who had a large, broad perspective of how the world worked, Jewish, Gentile, Roman, and so Paul was. The early church needed an apostle equipped with the prerequisites of a great traveler, and so Paul was. The Apostle Paul 
The early church needed someone who could bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul was able to do so in great fashion. What made this man tick? It's important to see his motivation. From his own words. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Who has enabled me. Because he counted me faithful. Putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer. A persecutor. And an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saving worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. It was the grace of God. At the end of his life, this is a letter that he wrote at the end of his life, And he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What fueled Paul? That moment. That moment. He never forgot it. He probably laid awake at night thinking, man, I was going the wrong way so many times. But Jesus found me. He never forgot this. And my friends, it drove him. I think it's fitting that our first legend in this series is Paul the Apostle. Because if you look at every legend, legend, if you look at anybody who God has ever used in a significant way, it's always a person who understands and appreciates grace and has experienced grace. That's the pattern that repeats over and over throughout church history. In fact, you can even go back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your country and from your father's house to a land that I will show you And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. That's the story of grace. Abram was an idol worshiper in the Ur of Chaldeas. God just found him. And I'm going to bring you to a land. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to make you a blessing. That's the pattern. God finds God blesses, and then God makes us a blessing. And the people that understand that and grasp that, they're fueled. And that's what made Saul so amazing. Has that moment happened to you? Have you had that moment in your life? Has there come a moment where you 
knew you were going the wrong way and you gave your life to Jesus and he changed your life. You say, Terry, you have no idea how bad I've been. Did you torture Christians? Were you a terrorist? If God can save Saul of Tarsus, God can save you. And Christian, this is what we're never to forget in our lives. This is what should motivate us as we serve Christ. This is what should fuel us. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, we thank you for your grace. Your grace that changes everyone's lives who allow it to, who let it. Lord, I thank you that no one is out of reach. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for what you did in his life and how we benefit from it. And I pray, Lord, that we would never, as your people, lose sight of what you've done for us. Just with your heads bowed, your Eyes closed tonight. Have you had that Damascus Road moment? You came tonight and you heard the story of how a man's life was completely changed. And it came by encountering Christ. Your life can be changed completely and totally. Jesus reaches out to you. And Jesus will save you. He died on the cross for you. And all of your sins can be forgiven. If you have not yet received him, invite him into your heart right now. If that's you, I just want you to pray this prayer in the quietness of your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, change me. I'm going the wrong way. Turn me around. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Be my Lord and my Savior. And I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and help me to follow you all the days of my life.
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.